Well, friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Last week, I tried to bite off a little bit more than I could chew and was not able to get to 1 Thessalonians 4. And this past week in preparation, I did it again and thought I could cover both 4 and 5. So the scripture reading today is going to be 1 Thessalonians 4, and that's going to be our focus, okay? So here we go with the reading of God's Word, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God, written for you and written for me. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, friends, I can tell you without reservation that the Ray family is very excited about our family vacation that's coming up this week, going to the Carolinas for a little getaway. Personally, I cannot wait. I cannot wait. To hit the beach, that's our happy place. Cannot wait to drink some sweet tea. For whatever reason, Texas still has not gotten the memo on that. Um, Cannot wait just for some good old-fashioned downtime. But I'm also looking forward to seeing family and friends. One friend in particular, a dear friend named Bob Stone, who about this time last year, if you might recall, lost his precious wife, Polly. Uh, Our dear friend Polly Stone, who Stephanie and I knew for 25 years, went to be with the Lord last August. And a number of us, a number of us had the privilege of being with her, um, of having thoughtful conversations with her, literally just days before she went to be with Jesus. She talked about a number of things. We covered a wide variety of topics, including her sadness her deep sadness of all the things that she was going to miss out on by going to be with the Lord. As wonderful and as glorious as heaven is with the Lord Jesus, there was still lament and pain and sadness over some of the things she was going to miss. For example, just a few days after she passed away, Her youngest son transitioned to college where he started his college baseball career. She had been his number one fan, had attended almost every game, and was looking forward to watching him play as much as anything else that she would not be able to do. Their oldest daughter, Amanda, though I don't think there's a boy in her life, she had always looked forward to going to that wedding. She looked forward to putting grandchildren on her knee 
things that would no longer be the case. As much as she longed for heaven, those losses were and are very real. And they're real for her husband as well. And that pain and that sorrow surrounding what Polly would miss out on gives us an emotional marker or a reference point for what the saints in Thessalonica were feeling. You know, it had been a year. It had been a year since Paul planted that church, the church in Thessalonica, and some in the church over the past year had died, had passed away, and that was causing lots of confusion, lots of concern, and lots of grief. Okay, look at the first half of verse 13. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. In other words, we want you to understand what happens to the Lord's people when they die. We don't want you to be misinformed. Sleep there is a metaphor for death. And he's saying we want you to understand what happens after one of the Lord's people dies because apparently there were serious misunderstandings going on in the church at Thessalonica, okay? Serious misunderstandings about what would happen to the Christian who died before Jesus came back in power and glory. Serious misunderstandings that was causing lots of confusion, lots of grief, and Paul would lay out that their grief, okay, their grief was, was inconsistent in some sense with the Christian's future hope. And I want us to think through why that's the case. And I want us to think through what we should do with our grief in some respects. Look at the second half of verse 13. Here's one of the major issues. He writes that you may not grieve, he doesn't want them to grieve as others do who have no hope. Why were the Thessalonian Christians, why were the Christians in Thessalonica grieving the death of believers like unbelievers who have no hope? Why in the world was that happening? Well, from what we do know about the ancient Greco-Roman world, there were many who thought that this world is the only world that there is, that this life is the only life. And if that's your view, if that's your view that this life is the only life, then death takes on a whole new meaning and a whole new finality, a finality and tragedy that should not be true of Christians in the same sense as how non-Christians would grieve the dead. Um, as we saw in Acts 17, you had you know, people from different philosophical schools, the Stoics, the Epicureans. Both philosophical systems viewed this life is all that there is and that after someone dies, that's it. And so the death of a loved one would just be about as tragic as it could get. But Paul did not want the Thessalonians to respond that way. He didn't want them to um, have a grief born of hopelessness. That's not to say that Christians shouldn't grieve. We've got a great example of Jesus leaning in to Mary and Martha's grief when their dear brother Lazarus died. When they were weeping, when they were in pain and heartache, Jesus did not rebuke them. 
He did not reject them. In fact, he wept with them. He entered their pain. He entered their hurt. He validated their grief. So Paul is not saying that all forms of Christian grief are inappropriate. What Paul is saying is that we shouldn't grieve like those who have no hope. Grief for the Christian, mourning another Christian, should be different. What's very um, poignant to read is a little book that C.S. Lewis wrote not long before he died. It's a book that he published just before he died. It's called A Grief Observed. In that book, Lewis deeply, and I mean deeply, grieves the loss of his wife, Joy. And in the beginning, if you read A Grief Observed, it has a very hopeless and broken ring to it. It's not that long, but, but that hopelessness changes over time as the Lord ministers to C.S. Lewis and helps frame his perspective. You see, Lewis had always thought he was going to be a bachelor. And he was fine with that. In fact, in ways, from what I understand, he, he would have preferred that when all of a sudden, this incredibly articulate and um, intelligent American writer started to write him with questions about Christianity, theological questions. The two became pen pals. Ultimately, C.S. Lewis married that woman in his late 50s, and they had a wonderful, albeit short, marriage. Sadly, because of cancer, they were only married three and a half years. You know? And to say that he was devastated when he lost joy would be an understatement. Even though she was a Christian and a godly woman, extremely strong in the face, faith, it almost ruined C.S. Lewis. He filled four journals in his house, responding, writing, helping to, you know, to, to frame his grief. And he published it, which was a very courageous thing to do, given all the things that he said and struggled with. He published it so that others might benefit from his struggle. It's raw and real, and it reminds me of a number of the Psalms that the Lord's people have written as they went through their dark night of the soul. Psalms where there was darkness and, you know, hopelessness and pain and, and a grief observed reads kind of like that. He expresses anger and he questions why God would do something like this. You see, the Thessalonians were heartbroken and their grief was intense and they were grieving like non-believers and in some sense, C.S. Lewis the great C.S. Lewis experienced that same thing. His son-in-law said, this book is a man emotionally naked in his own Gethsemane. It tells of the agony and the emptiness of a grief such as few of us have to bear. For the greater the love, the greater the grief. And the stronger the faith, the more savagely will Satan storm its fortress. I want to read just a few selections from a grief, grief observed. You know, because, well, I will say in the book, like, he has a hard time with 1 Thessalonians 4. 
that we shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. He said that verse was clearly written to our betters. Like in the beginning of his struggle, he was saying that text from 1 Corinthians 4.13 is, is unrealistic. You know, how can, how can people grieve any differently than, than he was grieving? He writes, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am afraid, but the sensation is like, I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. If you've ever lost someone that you loved, someone who was close to your heart, you should be able to relate to what he's writing. He writes, I keep on swallowing, but I feel concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. I, I dread the moments when the house is empty. Have you ever felt this way? He writes, there are moments, most unexpectedly, when something inside me tries to assure me that I really don't mind this so much, not so much after all. In other words, a coping mechanism. Love is not the whole of a man's life. I was happy before I ever met her. I have plenty of what are called resources. People, they get over these things. Come now, it's not so bad. One is ashamed to listen to this voice, but it seems for a little while to be making a good case. Then comes a sudden jab of red-hot memory, and all this common sense vanishes like an ant in the mouth of a furnace. He compared her death to an amputation. What would it be like if you had one of your arms or legs amputated? He writes, did you ever know, dear, how much you took away when you left? You have stripped me of even my past, even the things we never shared. I was wrong to say I was recovering from the pain of amputation. I was deceived because it has so many ways to hurt me that I discover them only one by one. I take walks and I see the berries reddening and I don't know for a moment why they, of all things, should be depressing. I hear a clock strike and some quality it always had before has gone out of the sound. What's wrong with the world to make it so flat, so shabby, so worn out looking? And then I remember. C.S. Lewis was a man who deeply loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he grieved in ways that I've almost never read or connected about. He grieved deeply the passing of his beloved wife. But over time, light began to break through the darkness. He writes, this is unendurable. And this is fascinating what he says, because what we're going to see is the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, was teaching C.S. Lewis things that he could have never learned apart from this experience. In other words, the death of his wife gave him insight into the love of Jesus Christ that he would have never had. He writes, this is unendurable. And one babbles, if only I could bear it, or the worst of it, or any of it, instead of her. 
But one can't tell how serious that bid is, for nothing is staked on it. If it suddenly became a possibility, then for the first time, we should discover how seriously we had meant it. But is it ever allowed? In other words, is it allowed for someone to take on the grief and the pain and the hurt for someone else? He writes, it was allowed. It was allowed, but only to one. And I can find that I can now believe again that he has done vicariously whatever can be done. He replies to our babble, you cannot and you dare not, but I could and I dared. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, taking all of our pain, all of our grief, all of our suffering, all of our sin, and dealing with it fully and finally, once and for all. C.S. Lewis learned to trust even when he couldn't understand. That's what the Thessalonians are learning. They are learning to trust even though they don't understand. They are grappling with a very difficult situation as they perceive it and they don't know up from down. They were grieving like those who had no hope and that needed to change. They needed to learn what trust looked like. Okay, so what was the problem? Now, it's, it's hard from our perspective to, to discern exactly what they were concerned about. You know, like reading the Pauline epistles, like we've said, it's like listening to a one-way telephone conversation. You have to infer what's going on. Well, clearly, the, fa- the saints in Thessalonica were heartbroken. They were heartbroken that, that some in the church had died since Paul had left. In particular, they were heartbroken and didn't know what to do with the fact that some of the Christians there had died before Jesus had returned. And for them, that was complex and confusing. Do you remember what the problem was that we talked about last week? You know, a lot of the Thessalonians, they had quit their jobs. Why did they quit their jobs? They were idle. They were freeloading. Because they were just positive that Jesus was going to come again so soon that they didn't need to work. They had a misunderstood and distorted impression of when the Lord Jesus is coming back in power and glory. They thought it was going to be so very soon. And so when Christians in their church started to die, that's something they had never thought about, something they had never anticipated, and they wept, and they were in pain. Because for some reason, they thought that those Christians were going to miss out. They thought that The Lord's people needed to be alive when Jesus came again to make all things new, like Chris talked about. What we understand in the Bible, believe it or not, is heaven is not the ultimate destination. Heaven is what we call the intermediate state. Um, Paul talks about, you know, um, to live as Christ and to die as gain and to be with him is far better. To be absent from the body, the Bible says, is to be what? is to be present with the Lord. If I died on vacation, Lord willing, because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, I would go to be with the Lord Jesus in heaven. But that's not the final state of things. Jesus is coming back in power and glory to make all things new. And these Christians in Thessalonica, they didn't fully understand 
they thought that only those who were living here when Jesus came back in power and glory and were going to enjoy this. And so they were lamenting. They thought it was tragic that their dear brothers and sisters in, in the faith were going to miss out on this glorious new heavens and the new earth. I know that seems strange to our ears. But keep in mind, Paul had only taught them for three weeks, okay? So we can cut them some slack. Paul had not really spent much time with the Thessalonians. Notice Paul's emphasis. He's going to talk about some things that happened before the end, but that's really the sequence of events is really not Paul's emphasis. Let's see what his emphasis is. Look at verse 14. How does he assure them? How does he comfort them in their grief? Verse 14. He writes... For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with, those, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, no one's going to miss out. None of the Lord's people are going to miss out on being with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Okay? Verse 15. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, notice this, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died in the Lord before Jesus comes back, no one's going to get in line in front of them, okay? They have equal priority, equal importance. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ, they will rise first. Far from missing out, they're going to rise first, he says. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Let me repeat that. We will always be with the Lord. There is no greater encouragement in this life than that phrase. Regardless of what happens to you, if you know the Lord Jesus, we will always be with the Lord, whether in life or in death. He ends in verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this is a picture. This is a picture of the second coming. We don't have time to go into all of the, um, the stages of the second coming and what that looks like, and the different theological perspectives of, of how this is going to unfold. I will say this. I do think there's a framework in the Old Testament that gives us a reference point for what's going to happen. Let me read to you just so very briefly from the end of Psalm 24, a beautiful psalm. In the Old Testament, when the king would go out and fight for his people, and when he would win the battle, he would conquer the foe, okay? You would have people within the city run out to meet their king and follow him in, the triumphant king, as he comes back into the city. This is pictured at the end of Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, verse 7, it reads, David is writing, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. See, this is the rubric for 1 Thessalonians 4. This gives you a sense of what's going to happen. Verse 8 of Psalm 24, who is this king of glory? It's Yahweh, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. 
Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord, Yahweh Almighty. He is the king of glory. The king goes out. He wins the battle. The people within the city rush out to meet him, celebrate his victory, and then follow him right back in the city. That's what's going to happen when the true king, the king of which Psalm 24 speaks, comes back in power and glory. What it means is that we will meet him in the air. When Jesus comes back, all those who have died in him are going to be glorified. They're going to get their body. They're, in a sense, going to come with him. The people that are alive at the time, their bodies will be glorified. They will meet him in the air. We'll all meet him in the air together, in a sense, outside the city, and follow him right back down into the blessedness and the glories of the new heavens and the new earth. And therefore, everybody will always be with the Lord, all of the Lord's people. It's going to be more glorious and more amazing than anything we can imagine. And so therefore, he's saying on that basis, Thessalonian Christians, don't grieve as those who have no hope. You have a hope that is beyond your wildest imagination. He wanted the Thessalonians to learn to trust even when they couldn't understand. They, don't know how, they didn't know how all these things could happen, but they needed to trust the one who did. I'm going to end with this. Again, the very thing that C.S. Lewis thought was going to be the end of him, this grief over his beloved godly wife, Joy, that was the thing. That was the tool that taught him so many things. Let me read one more little quick little passage. Because you can see through this book, slowly, slowly, his heart is drawn back. He writes, am I just coming back to God because I know that if there's any road to her, it runs through him? But then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you're really not approaching him at all. And he had learned that's what he had been doing in some sense. That's what was really wrong, and that's what's wrong with all of these popular pictures about happy reunions of heaven on the further shore. They make an end of what we can only get as a byproduct of knowing the true end. Lord, are these your real terms? In other words, is this what you're trying to teach me? That these relationships that we enjoy, as wonderful as they are, they are not the end. He is the end. And they can only be joy, uh, enjoyed and understood through him. He writes, when I lay it all before God, I don't get an answer. But it is rather a special sort of no answer. It's not a locked door. It is more like a silent but certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving off the questions like, peace, child, you don't understand. 
But what we do is we trust the one who does, who knows every hair on our head, who's planned the end from the beginning, who's ordained every one of our days and every one of our loved one days before even one of them came to be. The sequence of Jesus' return was not Paul's main point. His main point was that no one's going to be left behind. Verse 17b, this is his focus. If you remember nothing else, this is what shapes and frames our grief. Beloved, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for who he is and all that he has done. Father, um, in this fallen world, um, sadly, we're all going to experience to one degree or another exactly what C.S. Lewis did and what countless of the Lord's people, what the Thessalonians did, grieving pain and loss in this life. Father, we thank you, though. A day is coming when you come in power and glory and give us a new heavens and a new earth where there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain or tears or loss or death or separation for the former things will have passed away and you will make everything new. Lord, help us to understand that all of that is about us knowing you as the end, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.